So you recall when we first started this last year in the Old Testament survey, there were three sort of guiding principles that I had in the way I studied the Old Testament now and the way that I want to survey it for all of us. And that is, you know, the big picture of Scripture, of course, is God's rulership over His kingdom. That's what Scripture is all about, first and foremost. Everything else that comes in there, the importance of the gospel, all the stories, all of that is subsumed under the main heading of God's rulership over His kingdom. And how He asserts that rulership by His fiat and decree and, 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 and declaration and all the things that He says and does. And then, the second part to that is, okay, what's response of man to God. How does man respond to all that God has said in the Old Testament? We'll continue to see these patterns over and over. And then finally, the response of God to the response of man, right? So, man's response in so many words is, I have a problem with that God. So God says this, and man basically says, I have a problem with that. Even if he wouldn't articulate it in so many words, that sums up our response to God pretty well. God's obviously interfering with our right to be God. And then the response of God in its various ways, His wrath, His mercy, His further commands, and everything that He does, responding to the way that man struggles in His response to such a great God, right? So, we have here in First and Second Samuel what we would just really call contrasting kings. If you go back to the beginning and uh, there might be a little redundancy. I'm just touching base on something, and I don't know all the particulars of what Justin presented last week. But you know, in Hannah's song, we have a prelude, really, as to what really matters when it comes to kingship and when it comes to Israel in general, or for that matter, humankind. Because Hannah, in her prayer, particularly in verses four and then verses eight to ten, we read, and again, keeping in mind how this, how this uh, sort of sets the tone for what we're going to see showing up in the history of, of uh, Saul and David. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. In verse 4, and then down in verses 8 through 10, he raises up the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor <clears throat> for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And how does that play out in the kingships of both Saul and David? And you saw that last week and how it, how it went out. What about Saul's reign? Do we see anything in what I just read in those verses that speak to Saul's reign? Anything in that, in that prayer of hands that we saw in the reign of Saul, in, in his of those just those few verses that I read, right? How about the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Uh, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, right? Saul was a wicked king. So I have, you know, we don't know in the eternal counsels of God, but it'd be difficult for me to sort of know based on what we do have in Scripture that Saul is not with the Lord today. Um, in I think there's some evidence for that. Not that I think we need to pry into that so much, other than as to show that what we see in Hannah's prayer here, setting the tone of Hannah for so much of what happens, does play out. And then at the end of Second Samuel, of Second Samuel, we see David's song of deliverance, and it features some of the same particulars as Hannah's prayer. The two share in common. They both. <clears throat> this is uh, from an Old Testament survey. Tremper Longman and this other guy. I forget his first name, but his last name is Dillard. Anybody familiar with Tremper Longman? You're probably familiar with Tremper Longman. Very good skull. Both rejoice in deliverance from enemies. Both the, the Hannah song and the, and the David song celebrate God as a rock. Both speak of Sheol and describe God's thundering in the darkness, His protection of the faithful, and His steadfast love for the Lord's anointed. And so in between those two songs of Hannah and David is what, again, I would call a contrast in kingship. What are some of the important differences between David and Saul from what you learned last week and what you sort of already know about David before we, we review his monarchy and his decisions? Some basic differences between Saul and David, if someone were to ask you as I am now. Yes, Bev? David loved God with all his heart. David loved God with all his heart. But it was certainly to a greater extent than Saul. 
Anyone say that because none of us loves God with all our heart. None of us. Everyone fails at that every day. There were different tribes. Yeah, there were different tribes. Yep. So there is that. One was tall, the other one was probably shot. Yeah. One was one was ruddy and handsome. <laughs> and the other stood shoulders above the rest, right? Mm-hmm. But what about their monarchies? What about the execution of their kingship? What things come to mind in terms of very important distinction? Yes, Bev? Uh, saw what Bonnie Jonathan killed at one point. Yeah. Because he disobeyed. Yeah. Yeah. How bad is those? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Justin. Yeah. It's such a big difference there, right? I mean, that is the difference. That is the difference. And there's another. There's another main ingredient uh, as well. Uh, you'll see. Yes, Dave. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add to that, uh, kind of uh, on what Justin said, that, mm. um, you know, when David asked permission to, to before going to battle, yes, he consulted the Lord, yep. and the Lord, and when Saul went to God, God was not listening to him anymore. That's right. That's right. You, you remember from First Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice, right? And to hearken to the fat of rams. So, Saul wasn't familiar with that concept all too well. What's the other thing that is the main ingredient in this contrast? Why was one completely ruined and the other not? Because we're going to see David, David's sins were every bit as grievous, if not more, than Jonathan's. Uh, than Saul's. What's the main difference? Don't think man, thank God. What is the main difference between the what happens in, 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 in what we know about Saul and what we know about David? Yes. David repented. David did repent. There is that, yes. Yes. And then there's also what I'm getting at and what we'll come across is covenant. God made a covenant with David that he did not make with Saul. And that covenant is the difference between Jesus being the Messiah in the, in the Davidic line. And it's the difference between there being a Messiah and there not being a Messiah based on David's monarchy. If it was that alone, there would have been trouble, yes. Could you say it this way too that Saul was the people's choice? Mm-hmm. And David was God's choice. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly is that. David is not one that would have been, as you know, was not identified with the kingship. He was the least among those shepherds. So, yeah. One is the people's choice. The other is God's choice. And that's a big difference, too. Uh, and, and, and that can continue to show up. God's rulership, man's response to God, God's response to man. Think, think of what you consider to be the great sin of your life. How would you like to be known for that for 3,000 years publicly? Recorded for all history, the great sin of your life. Don't, you know, I'm not asking to share it, right? And, and, and despite that, despite that, we see in Acts 13, as we'll take a look at later, you know, we see that the, the covenant is fulfilled. Paul mentions that, that God kept the covenant. And, and this is likewise true of us, right? That God keeps us in in. Though the story of our sin and ruin and consequences may be very great, God is at work executing His plan and sort of not limited by our failures. Right? Though we, we do still bear consequences, God is not limited by our failures to execute the plan that He has in place. And that's great news. You know, that's, that's because we want, we all want God's will to be, to be done. Right? We... we Hopefully when we pray, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done, we mean that. So God is not limited by the failures He makes people that He covenants with. Even though, of course, as we will see, the consequences certainly bore out David's life. For, for the, I can just continue to stress over again, some of the most heinous sin we see in all of Scripture. Worse than, I would say, worse than the man that slept with his, his father's wife, his stepmother. David's sin is some of the most grotesque sin that we see. Um, so Saul and David are also a contrast in cursing and blessing, right? Remember that in Deuteronomy, God had issued his requirements for the king. So, go back here to Deuteronomy for a minute. In, um, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 15. Just want to remind you of what God said would be needful of a king. This is not all of it. In chapter 17, verses 14 to 15, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, 
You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Right? That's back to Gary's point. The difference between Saul and David being one the people chose and one God chose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. I don't want to say you saw, but that begins to the, the, the wheeze on that. You may not put a foreign over you. Let's go down to verse 18 to 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. This is what a king was supposed to do, right? The king, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, this book, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That was a requirement of kingship. You were to be a pastor king, in a sense. You were to be a, the, a shepherd. The shepherd was beyond just sort of uh, the military, although it was a theocratic military, it was also in the full administration of God's law. And blessing and, and, and cursing is integral to that law that they were supposed to commit themselves to, right? We know from the Mosaic law that there's blessing and there's cursing, right? And we can sum up so much of the Old Testament by saying, blessed if you do, cursed if you don't. Okay? And so, so the king should certainly know that, that there was blessing and cursing. This law that the Levitical priest approved the copy of which he wrote so that he's sure to have all of it, they would certainly know that. And so we see this blessing and cursing play out. Okay, we're going to see that play out, and we certainly saw it play out in the life of Saul and how it plays out in the life of David. So, I mean, generally speaking, right, David was off to a very good start, wasn't he? David had a very good beginning, like, like many, you know? Uh, and and we, we, could even, we could even say, that we could even remark really that David's monarch, David's monarchy is a contrast in kings in it himself. In David's own monarchy, we see a contrast in kings. The king that he was and the king that he unfortunately kind of became. And, the, and then the king that he finally is known as. And so he certainly had a very good start before things went bad. And again, about as long as they could possibly go. As somebody said, David's life is an intimate picture of human greatness and folly of wisdom and sin, of faith and faithlessness, of contrasting perspectives and conflicting desires. Right? Like many of us, right? So conflicting desires. But, but of course, the, the, the way that we hold our faith and maintain our walk with God, it, it has a varying... The, the, the realm of our influence, the sphere of our influence, is ranges from person to person, Right? So, in a theocratic monarchy, that much greater, right? Everything is. And so, I mean, pastors, you know, all the things you read about as qualifications for pastors, elders, <clears throat> and Timothy and Titus, those are lives that, those things ought to typify all of us, okay? You don't need to be an elder or a pastor to be the husband of one wife, to have integrity, to not be a striker or a brawler. I mean, that should be true of all of us. But... More so, not more so, but you see the impact of what that is like in a pastor or elder. And you see if that elder or pastor falls in those areas, it, it, it just reverberates. It, it's, it, you get that, um, what do you call it when a bomb goes off? The shockwave. What the shockwave does to, to, to the whole community, right? So David's life then, because he's got, he's got this human greatness and folly, he's got wisdom and he's got sin, he's got faith and he's got faithfulness. He's got these contrasting perspectives and conflicting desires. The impact. Right? Now, again, it, does it sound like anyone else you know? Anyone you know that has greatness and folly, wisdom and sin, faith and faithlessness, contrasting perspectives, conflicting desires. If you can't think of anyone, there's a mirror in the bathroom that you can begin with. <laughs> right? Every one of us. It, 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 in at the very beginning of Second Samuel, you see this incredible lament that David pours out over the death of Saul and Jonathan. 
in, in uh, it is a continuation of the way that David thought of God's anointed. He refused, as you know, through First Samuel, to take the opportunities he had to take Saul out. And as you, again, I don't know all the details that Justin went over, but you will recall from from the record that we have that when that young dude came around boasting that he took Saul out, David had him killed. How could you not think it? How could you think it okay to come here and tell me this? That you, that you took Saul's life. Kill him. You know, so David had a very high regard, sort of for the position, I guess, for the office in a way. You know, And he had at one point, as you know, a, an affectionate relationship with, with Saul. Yeah, Randy. Now, um, I was thinking, what, didn't he say at one point that it was the, the Lord's anointed? Mm. Right? Absolutely. He, he always thought that way. Yeah, and in one of the accounts of David sparing Saul, he says, you know, how could I do this thing? How could I put my hand yeah. against the Lord's anointing? That's right. Yeah. Now, there is no, we, we, can't, we can't transfer that to, like, government. Like, we can't, all right, so it's not like, we can't think of, like, say, Joe Biden or when Trump was president as the Lord's anointed. Remember that we're in the context of a theological monarchy, right? That's very important to keep in mind. We can know things because God revealed them to us in Scripture, right? So, now on the other hand, obviously God sovereignly decreed that in the course of time, George Washington should be president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt should be president, Eisenhower, all the presidents should be presidents, right? In God's sovereign decree. And the execution of his righteous rule over his kingdom, his universe, God regarded it for whatever purposes he has in mind that those men would be presidents, and obviously, that doesn't mean it doesn't make them good, bad, or indifferent. And we have we have rules and everything about government, but we do have to recall that we are in the middle of a theocratic monarchy. So this, we want to apply these principles is, is you know it's going to vary over the way we might think of our local government. Um, I do want to mention just a few things from that prayer because I think it's important to in this day and age. Okay, maybe you already know where I'm going with that. Uh, but, but I think it's important to mention this um, because it's an important principle in understanding all of Scripture. Oh, how the mighty have fallen, right? I like that. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. David knew. David saw that. And this is the thing about David, right? <laughs> he could see how the mighty have fallen. And yet, you know, you saw her standing on the roof. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. Remember that song from the, the uh, Cohen who wrote that song, the Hallelujah. Saw her, you know, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. Saw her standing on the roof, her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. That's a reference to this. Now that and even made it into contemporary song, David's great error. So he can say how the mighty have fallen and yet fall into that. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than me. What an honorable thing that David says. This is the guy who wanted to kill him. The guy who threw a javelin at him while he was playing the harp. You know, just... The guy that, that wanted him dead. This is the verse that I just wanted to give a moment to. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. It should come as no surprise that there is this verse and other verses, including when Jonathan stripped off some of his garment to give to David, that there are those in the contemporary argument over human sexuality that have referenced this, saying that Jonathan and David had a homosexual love affair and romance. And they're very serious about that. But it's important, yes, we can easily dismiss that, and we in a certain sense should, but to also realize exegetically the words are not in place to support such a supposition at all. Okay, so the words, the words that are used in the in the original language uh, that are commonly used for sexual acts are not even hinted at here. The kind of love that's talked about here is a love that's talked about throughout all kinds of scripts for all kinds of relationships. The stripping of the garments is not a stripping down naked for homoerotic, you know, uh, engagement. It just had to do with some things that were honoring. Uh, David as the new king of, uh, anointed by God to give to him. So, 
there is no case at all to be made about that. But you will hear that. You will absolutely hear that. It's not uncommon at all. Yes? It's also really helpful to understand that um, God creates this affection between Jonathan and David. Yes. This is part of the means that God uses to help David secure his throne without a civil war. Yeah. So this isn't just some uh, beat in the story that the authors recorded, but rather it's a very specific thing that God has brought about mm-hmm. for a very specific purpose. So, so you're on to a very important point there. It's a very important point because it, 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 it surpasses the love of women because it surpasses the love of women in the context that you're talking about. It's not saying it surpasses the love of women in his marital context. Whatever role the wives, uh, the daughters of Saul played and all that kind of thing in his marriage and, and, and other kings, I think the important point is the role. It, 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 it's a little bit similar to I was talking to Kim about this. We're watching the new uh, Lord of the Rings thing that's on Amazon, The Rings of Power. And one of the problems with this, in my view, is it's got a certain woke quality to it. So the Lady Galadriel, who is this elegant elf queen in the original Lord of the Rings series and plays a very important role. Well, they're showing her in her early years. She's the commander of the armies of the north. And she's motivating the men and leading them in battle. And every time I watch it, I say to Kim, see, this is why I, this is why this stuff turns me off. Because women cannot lead men in battle. Because women cannot motivate men to fight. It, it, there's a connection between men and men. A mutual understanding. A mutual body chemistry. All kinds of things that we have in common that enable a man to lead men in a meaningful way in battle. A woman cannot lead a man in battle. Period. Yes. That's why I wouldn't want to have a female president because she'd be classified the commander-in-chief. I agree. And I don't... And let me say this for all... If somebody's listening to this a hundred years down the road, I say this in love. I don't care what you think about that claim. Because I think it's entirely biblical and in keeping with what God intended for males and females. And um, it's entirely countercultural. And I don't say it just to be countercultural because there's no benefit in just being countercultural. But it speaks to the very thing I think that in, in, I would not have made that connection had you not said that, Justin. That the love that uh, exceeds the love of women is, is there's a context to that. And we know from the rest of Scripture that God is clearly against. David, as a king, had to read a book, a copy of the book of the law, which the Levites had to approve him. They say that to lie with another man is abomination. So let's just be a little bit sort of exegetical here and not let eisegesis, which is reading into Scripture that which is not there, be our guiding principle to satisfy a cultural need and to appeal. But the good thing about that is, though, I do like that there are some in, that are trying to, in, in, in our contemporary views of sexuality that are trying to appeal to an authority. That's good. That means they, some of them see outside that there's an authority outside of their own desires to which they should be appealing. Right? So there's this struggle then that takes place between uh, the house of David and the house of Saul. Right? Um, and, and, and I'll even add this too. I think that there are things that, like the ladies ministry in their study here on Thursday nights, they don't need any of the elders to come and sit down and listen to that and see if it meets with approval. They, we don't need to interfere with that dynamic. There is a dynamic that will take place between women in a study that doesn't need male interference. <laughs> or even male presence to, 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 to mess things up in a sense. I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, I don't want to fight with you about it. I could be wrong. Um, but just because I could be wrong doesn't mean it's reasonable to believe that I am. Okay. So there's a struggle between the house of David and the house of Saul. We read about that early on. So Abner made Isposheth, the son of Saul, king of Israel. And David was anointed by the men of Judah. So you get this tension already, right? And now, of course, David had already been anointed by Samuel back then. But the men of Judah anointed David king in Judah. So you already have a, a little divided kingdom going on. But David succeeds. One of his first great successes then is uniting all of Israel. Again, right? Obviously, it's going to be divided again down the road. In part by thrashing the great enemy of both, which is the Philistines. Right? Once again, I should say, David thrashed. What was the first time David thrashed the Philistines? Yeah, right? <laughs> yep, he's an army of one there, right? So, we see these nice qualities of David. These wonderful qualities. That he laments the death of God's anointed. That he was consistent in the way that he thought about the Lord's anointed. 
that that man Jonathan in his life was, was such a treasure and to pour out his emotion about that and, and to just sort of share that for this gives us a real insight to the kind of man that David was a very tender sort of guy a very uh, powerfully tender guy right and then we see David bring the ark into Jerusalem there's a lot of other things going on but David brings the ark to Jerusalem and now again remember what we just said about the requirements of the king okay that, that he had to know the law of God and keep it so over here in chapter 6 verse 8 what do we see we see when there was a there was a man named Uzzah right Uzzah blew it reached out grabbed the ark boom God killed him that's not the way you deal with the ark and I say it flippantly like that but there's nothing flippant about the holiness with which God revered the which that he endued with the presence of the ark and all that that meant and the real particulars to how that should be handled so he does that and we say and David was angry because the Lord had burst forth in Uzzah Okay, and that place is called Perez Uzzah today. Why was David wrong to be angry about that? What should he have known? He have known yeah, he should have known the way that, that ark should have been transported. That thing's supposed to be on poles between, you know, uh, priests and everything, right? In a certain way. It's not supposed to be being pulled by cattle in the way it was. So, again, David should have known the law. And then we see over in verse 14, you know, he says... Um, and David, so when David comes into the city, it's just such a great story of David. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing the linen ephod. Right? So David, in all the house of the Lord, barked the ark of the Lord, was shouting with the sound of the horn. What does that tell us about David? What's going on in David's heart? What causes someone to rejoice of the importance of the ark and coming to the city of David? In the spirit. In, right? Mm. What was that? In the spirit, yeah, he's just you know he is certainly filled with the spirit, which causes us to be able to praise the Lord. Yeah, man, just pour our heart and rejoicing, right? I mean, so much so that his wife gets all jealous, right? I saw all the young babies checking you out, Mister Half Naked Dancing David. I saw you out there in your little linen ephod. David's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a lot crazier than that. This is the and so this is the Lord you're talking about, and 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 he says it was David says it was before the Lord the Lord. By the way, who chose me above your father, and above all his house to appoint me as prince of Israel, the people of the Lord? And I will make Mary before the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes because what you think of me doesn't matter in this respect. This is God. This is this is David sanctifying. Yahweh is Lord in his heart. Right? So we're learning a lot about David the man in this. And then we get this, you know, we come to the key, or the hinge upon which everything else turns, is God's covenant with David. Right? And so we need to read verses 8 through 16 because I think it's important and it would be good to have someone else read that. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, well, I'll ask two people to read. So, um, Denise, may I ask you please to read verses 8 through 12. 8 through 12. And then Sue um, Gilmeister, would you please read 13 through 17. I'm sorry. So, Denise is 8 through 12. And then Sue is 13 through 17. That's right. The numbers are very tiny. Mm-hmm. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. You shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Thank you, yes. And we know we're in Acts again, 13.23, where Paul says, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he had promised. He was talking about David. So, but, who is, who is, who is he talking about in the immediate context? In your days of the field, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who will establish... You know, who is he talking about there? I'm sorry? Christ. No, I wouldn't say Christ. Not immediately. I'll tell you why. Yeah, I'm sorry? Solomon. Yeah, yeah. Who? And why do I? And so, two things going. Why do I say? How do I know that it's not Christ he's talking about? What did the text there to tell you that it's not Christ? Yes. Um, he talks about if he doesn't obey. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and and this is an important thing in the Old Testament. And I, and I bring it up for that reason. Um, in his book, the From Creation to the Cross, Albert Bayless said. Christians often read the New Testament as if its Old Testament quotations about Christ are referring only to him. That Christ is predicted throughout the scriptures, right? But he is not necessarily directly predicted in all the scriptures. Nor is he hidden in some mystical or allegorical way. It was supposed to be, right? All of these lines of promise and great themes of the Old Testament ultimately meet in Christ. And I just think that that's a very good point, right? Because we can miss that if we consistently sort of if we consistently plunder the Old Testament of its meaning and just immediately say everything is an immediate reference to Christ, we're missing an awful lot because then you're depriving everything that becomes ultimately significant in Christ. Because what you're saying is, well, wait a minute, that's just pointing to Christ and it's just some allegorical secret sort of hidden thing. Then you say, well, wait a minute, then it has no meaning with which we can understand Christ brings that meaning to its fullest sense. It has to have an immediate sense and application and understanding here so that then we can appreciate how Christ brings it to its fullest expression later, right? So it has to have some meaning here. Otherwise, if it's just, well, no, it's all just an allegory to Jesus, and well, then how do we know? How do we know the significance of its fulfillment if it's not revealed at all in the Old Testament? So it's just an important, again, exegetical hermeneutical principle that we pay careful attention to the immediate reference so that we can then come to appreciate even more how that's fully realized in Jesus. Right? And now we come to the horrible chapter. Right? One of the most horrible events of all Scripture, and that is David's, again, his horrendous sin. And it is just horrendous. You know? he doesn't, first, he doesn't, go out, he doesn't go out to the battle with the kings. And that, is such a, that verse has provoked more curiosity than I can probably come to conclusion on. In, in, in the springtime, when the kings were out to battle, David was up on his roof, roof, and he saw Bathsheba. Now, there's a part of me that has speculated over the years, and I don't have scripture on this, so it's just speculation. It's not the first time David was aware Bathsheba was up on that roof bathing. I can't help but I wonder if David, in some of his way, didn't already sort of, just like, um, and this is the truth for men more than women, in pornography, you plant the seed of adultery. <laughs> it's not the first time. That adultery is not the first time that occurred to you. And But it's, it, I mean, it's not in Scripture that way. But it does tell us that when the kings typically go out to battle, David wasn't out to battle. So he wasn't where he belongs. That's always going to be one of the first things that gets us in trouble. You wouldn't where you belong. Right? Uh, and he sees Bath, Bathsheba bathing in the irony of that name, which means daughter of the oath. <laughs> and just the first part of her name in English being Bath has always cracked me up. I mean, because in Hebrew it doesn't have that meaning at all, you know. Uh, and so David commits adultery. It may even be considered a form of rape. Mm-hmm. You don't say no to the king. Right? I mean, our, our own laws recognize this dynamic. This is from a particular legal website. Laws that prohibit sexual conduct between people and consent in certain relationships are based on the rationale that the victim cannot truly consent to such activity because he or she is in some way under the defendant's influence or authority. Now, obviously, you have to be careful with this, right? But these relationships include doctors and patients. 
psych- psychologists in, in their patients, caretakers and children, uh, and the parole or correctional officer and people who are under their authority. So even in a consensual sexual relationship, the law recognizes that there's a principle in play here that it's not really fully consensual because there's a certain thing that's compelling you to do it. I mean, the, and in this case, it's the king. <laughs> and you don't freely, entirely say no to the king. Maybe like the, the Celtics coach. Yeah, sure. You might want to enlighten the non-Celtic fans. So, what happened to the coach? Why is he not playing for a year or whatever? Because he had consensual, supposed consensual relationship yeah. with a fellow employee, yep. and uh, that was against the, yep. their rules. Yep. As a result, he lost his job, basically. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, there's a certain sense in which, to me, this goes beyond just. I think. David, because it's clear that David is violent. Why do I say it? Do I have other reasons to believe in Scripture that supports this? Yes, David clearly has used the kingship for his own power and purposes. All right, he, he fell. Uh, there's a real power dynamic in play here. David certainly, again, is using that authority to manipulate the entire situation, including Uriah's death. So David basically killed Uriah. You know, Uriah was a noble man, a very noble man. David's like, all right, I got to get him home. I get all right, so I so I got I, I got her pregnant. What do I do now? He goes the master psalm writer. Right? And this is the tragedy of sin. Man, do we get so creative when we want to escape the consequence. So he says, I know Uriah come home, visit his wife. Hey Uriah, come on, let's I'm not gonna spend the night with my wife. What are you doing? I'm not gonna spend the night with my wife while my men are out the men are out fighting in battle. So already he's more noble than David. And then David gets him hammered. Right? Gives him the wine <coughs> wine from the good stuff. Gives him the vintage. Right? But again, as Baylor says, even when he's drunk, he's more honorable than David. <laughs> he just won't do it. So David, you know, he can trust Joab. In verse 12, 9. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, so he sends uh, Uriah to the front line to get killed. He knows he's going to get killed. In fact, he says to Joab, make sure he gets killed. Put him up there where guys get killed. Okay? And we ask ourselves, how did it come about that David was able to commit such heinous acts? How did that happen? And I think 12.9 gives us the answer. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down your right of the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. The Ammonites, that wicked people, so, he, so that makes it even worse. But here's why. Here's how this happened. He despised the word of the Lord and did what was evil in his sight. David the king, who's supposed to have a copy of the book of the law, <coughs> meditate upon it, think upon it night and day. It's the same reason we all sin. The same reason why we all fall into great moral error. We despise the word of the Lord and we do what is evil in his sight and we know it's evil in his sight. Right? So David was, was repentant when he was confronted with that parable by Nathan and the parable is just a very clever device because it actually insulated David from deceiving himself. Parables are kind of like that. The way that Nathan put this parable together was such that David didn't see it coming. Right? David was able, he, so he, he constructed this parable in such a way that David would recognize the wrong in it and then once he recognized the wrong in it, there was no escaping. There was no slithering. Whereas if he was just sort of confronted with what he did, he could find a, he might find a way to do the dance a little bit, right? The moral dance. Or if he were to come... Yes, Justin. This is one of the amazing things about the way that God works to change our heart. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. No? Exactly. So he 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 protects David from his own proclivity to manipulate, to lie, to deceive. Everything he was already trapped in, God devises this in such a way as to get and it is it is the grace of God, even though David's going to pay a very heavy price of consequences. Right? And so the whole blessing cursing thing comes into play, right? As Tim Mackey describes curse the curse is the consequence of see of the consequence of seizing our own blessings on our own terms. That's when the curse comes about. The curse has to come about as a consequence of seizing our own blessings on our own terms. Oof, right? 
And so many of David's blessings, therefore, turned to curse. You know, Psalm 127, uh, verse 3 to 4, we read that... Um, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Okay? And then we go over to Second Samuel, and look what happens to this blessing. Look how David turns it to a curse. Second Samuel 10, 12, 10 to 12. Mm-mm-mm. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sun for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all of Israel under the sun so so look at David's family from this point on right he has a child conceived in sin the child conceived in sin who remains nameless never even has a name that we know of in scripture dies as a consequence of David's sin that's the first consequence this is the first consequence then David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister David's daughter Tamar and then Absalom, in turn, freaks out and murders, uh, murders uh, Amnon. Thanks. Right? And, and then that, that puts a big rift between you know, David and Absalom's put out of the, in a way, exile in a certain sense. And so it's just as God said it was going to be, right? Over in 16, chapter 16, verses 20 to 22, it says, uh, Absalom says to Ahithophel, this is when Absalom is trying to take the throne, Absalom says to Ahithophel, give me counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father in the hands of all our strength and you will be with you. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on his father's roof, on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Exactly what God said would happen would happen. He said, I'm going to do this publicly. And so it was, and that was a big deal because the concubines were the kings. That was a sign of kingship. I mean, that's how they came to know that David, at the end of Chronicles, was he it was time for him to be out of his king, kingship. He was no longer. They sent in Abishag the Shunammite, who was supposed to be able to get him aroused and see if he was still still vigorous. And he wasn't. He wasn't. And that was a way of knowing that his another way of knowing his kingship had come to an end. David was. That's why they had Abishag the Shunammite come and lay with him, keep him warm, and that kind of thing. That was concubine for kings. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. So he did that in front of everybody. So, and then again, Absalom dies in disgrace. So this is David's family, where the sword does not depart from. Right? And Joab is his nephew. Joab is involved. Joab's the one that, 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 that nails Absalom, takes Absalom out. He also took out Abner. So, and then we see a little more of David's poor leadership. He made more publicly about his son Absalom's death than he should have. And it almost cost him the allegiance of all the armies. Joab said, you better suck it up, buttercup. Quit your sniveling, crying, whiny about your son because you're telling all these people you care more about this guy that wants to take your throne than you do them and they're ready to leave. You're going to lose everybody and it's going to be worse than it was before. So, man up. Right? It's my paraphrase, but it's very accurate. Right? And <clears throat> this Joab was a real mixed blessing in David's life. Joab was, was David's nephew. But again, he killed Abner, he killed Absalom. He killed Amasa, whom David, who had made commander over the armies after this stuff happened. And so Joab goes to hug Amasa, grabs him by the beard, and plunges a sword into his gut so that he doesn't lose his commandership of the army. And then, just sort of wrapping up in the final acts here that we see in Second Samuel, the final three chapters, key events, and what they tell us about David. So, chapter 22, we again, we see that great song of praise for his deliverance, right? And again, the context is very important. The context is deliverance from his enemies, okay? Why is that important to mention? Because in verses 21 to 25, you see David seeing things like, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his rules were before me. Well, wait a minute. How could he possibly say that? Well, the context here, this whole song is about deliverance from military enemies. So this is not 
David talking about his, his life in general. There's a very specific context to this, right? So, with Saul, Absalom, Shimei even, right? Whom, you know, Solomon would later take out. But Shimei who cursed David and David said, no, leave him be for now. Right? The way that David responded to his enemies, right? The way that David treated all his enemies. Um, but then in verse 51, he says, great salvation he brings to his king and he shows steadfast love to his anointed David and his offspring forever. Remember, not everything is immediately about Christ, but in Christ, all these things do come together that's what we're going to see the David and his offspring forever. And so the, the salvation here is not about deliverance from hell and saved by the gospel. Okay? The salvation David's talking about is not talking about being saved from hell and eternal wrath. He's talking about deliverance from his enemies. Salvation always has a context. And most of the time in the Old Testament has little to do with ultimate redemption. Yes? Yeah, David said, don't take out Shimei. Yep. When he's dying, he asked oh, yeah. Solomon to do all yep. this stuff. That's right. And Solomon did. So what do you think about that? Well, he actually gave Shimei a chance. Yeah. I mean, Solomon gave Shimei a chance, didn't he? He said, stay put. As soon as you cross that line, you're dead. Shimei crossed the line. Right? Um, but Solomon, as king, could execute the same kind of wrath that David did on the kid that killed Saul. Right? He wouldn't have to do it himself. And wouldn't do it himself at that point. At least David had perhaps, you know, learned not to abuse his authority in that area. But we do see, though, we do see that David messes up with the, with the census, right? And again, as the guy says, David will not be the good shepherd that will give his life for the sheep. It's interesting here. So God gives him a choice. So, again, the census, why was it wrong to take? It could be for a number of reasons. It could be that he was just doing it again for, because we know it offended God, and because we know that, David's troubles have come from the abuse of his kingship. Somehow he was abusing his kingship and wanting to make something more of it. Or whatever it was, the census aggravated God. And even Joab knew in advance it would be like, no, David, don't do this. Right? So, so David chooses the option of either plague or pestilence as opposed to having being pursued by his enemies. And that's interesting. And that's why I think this particular commentator said, we see that this is not the good shepherd. He's not willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Although, in verse 17, after he sees the consequences, after several thousands die, David does say, don't, don't take this out on them, Lord. This is, this is sort of my sin, right? So, he, he does kind of come around a little bit on that. Um, final thoughts. What are some things we all have in common with King David? <laughs> Just think about What encouragement is there for us in this? And the encouragement is... Again, ultimately, we see that promised Messiah, but we do see the king. You know, Jesus is the perfect anointed king and son. The good news of his death and, and burial and resurrection to reconcile ruined, lost sinners back to God is such a kingly, conquering thing where the king leads his people in battle and takes the front line, right? Every great epic battle scene in movies ever made with a king derives its meaning from this. As producers and writers, and animation people, mostly unwittingly, are imaging God when they create such fantastic kingly movie scenes. I really believe that. I believe the image of God in us, which we don't even consciously think of, I think that plays out in artists and things like that, and people who cannot help but say, this is a magnificent, triumphant thing. Right? Theoden, riding down, clanging swords with all his people. Or some of these other great scenes that you see where there's the epic battle where the king is going forth and putting his life on the line first. I think all those things only enter the minds of men and women because of the image of God that is played out ultimately in what it means to image God, right? And how that is revealed to us in Jesus. So that's just an assumption that I'm layering over on top of those, but I think it, it's good. And last thought here, in the same way that David has gone into single-handed combat with the great enemy of Israel, which is Goliath, so too Jesus would single-handedly triumph over the enemy of our souls. And that's... We might pick up David again, but we will obviously some in Chronicles. Um, depending on how the course of study goes, it's difficult to determine. It seems like better attendance today. We're running into the problem of people going to small groups on Sunday mornings. Um, and why does that interfere? Well, it interferes with the number of people that can, that can teach. It's hard. I, mean, I, I personally, I can't teach each week. It just requires a lot of time. I mean, this isn't something to throw together in an hour or two, right? So, right now, it's up in the air. We'll see. I, I can't promise you how long it's going to go on. We'll see how this plays out with small groups, right? Is that fair enough, Gary? Is that 
to see it go, but... Uh, I mean, this, this is good. This is workable. But I want to make sure that, A, we have enough participation, and, B, we have, you know, based on people's schedules and routines, again, I know Seth can't... I, I thought you were... In, and, see, I guess one of the reasons I thought this, Justin, was I thought you were in a small group on Sundays. Yeah, it'll be starting up next. Okay, week. so yeah, that's another key, you know, person in the teaching rotation. So and Todd's, Todd's out of the picture at least all of October. Um, Gary, He's trying to do a whole. Yeah, Gary doesn't want to see his face being seen both here and then up at the pulpit up the street too. You know. Anyway, we can talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about it. But I just, I say all that to sort of, in, in a way, coerce you to keep your interest up and keep on attending. Because I, I, I like the interaction and I like it. It's so important, the Old Testament. It's so important. We started for a reason, not so that we could leave it half off. Um, so, yeah. I just want to add a small comment about David's adultery with Bathsheba. I do uh, agree with your impression that it's, there is a power dynamic mm. going on there. Mm. Oh, yeah. Somehow encouraging it. Yeah. Um, it still is sin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, no doubt. She was definitely in sin. Yeah. Oh no, he, he was. She was in sin. He was in sin. You know, you, when it comes to that, you know, the Book of Hebrews says you have not yet resisted to the point of point of bloodshed, right? Mm-hmm. You have not yet resisted sin to the point of bloodshed. None of us, you know. We, we, we surrender too easily to sin. And the cost is not our blood. Fortunately, and praise God, there is one on whom the sin of all, the blood, the blood that covers all sin, was born out in sin. Good, good. All right. Uh, so, uh, Randy, would you please pray for us? So we can...